Film itself is a technological process. It's creating a kind of reality all through this machine, really, the camera and the sound recording and all the effects that go into a film. And there's an illusion of life. There's an illusion of reality, but that's all created by technology. Welcome to Innovation Uncovered, a podcast from Invesco QQQ and T-Brand at the New York Times. It's about the ideas and discoveries that are driving our culture forward, from how we play, to what we consume, to how we connect. In this episode, we are going to the movies. Innovators are constantly pushing the boundaries of what visual effects can create or recreate on screen. Now, maybe you're thinking of a scene you saw in some science fiction epic or fantasy film, but it turns out the hardest thing to achieve with digital effects might be scenes that land a lot closer to reality. I'm Corey S. Powell. I'm the former editor-in-chief of Discover Magazine, and as a science writer, I've covered everything from dark matter to the origin of life. And I'm joined today by my fabulous co-host. I'm Kristen Meinzer. I'm a culture critic and journalist, and I'm going to be your eyes and ears out in the field, or in this case, in the theater bringing a little science and a little culture to conversations about innovations impacting our world today. Now, Kristen, I know I often think of visual effects as something digital done with powerful computers and software, but it's actually something that filmmakers have been using since the very beginning. I mean, the way beginning, dating all the way back to the late 1800s. In those early days, effects were done in a physical way with colored lenses, miniatures, and projected images. Yeah, and as I understand it, Corey, things were done mostly analog for quite a long time after that, too. Exactly. It wasn't really until the early 1990s that computers were fast enough and powerful enough for visual effects to go digital. You know, when I'm watching older movies, Corey, the effects sometimes stand out and not in a good way. They look dated and obvious, and that's something visual effects artists are still grappling with. How do they make a scene look real or believable? It's a fascinating problem. Can you even make something that's been constructed with software look like it's a part of the real world? Well, new computer and camera technologies are pushing the boundaries of what's possible. Which could be especially useful right now in the middle of a pandemic. Right. They're using visual effects to help solve new problems when filmmakers can't be on location. Ooh, nice. Movie making by remote control. Maybe, but at the most extreme end of things, this raises a question. Could these effects replace humans with virtual actors? And is that what we want? To start this journey into special effects, I thought it would be interesting to talk to someone who's worked on some of the most groundbreaking film innovations. My name is Pablo Hellman. I'm the visual effects supervisor at ILM. Been there 24 years. ILM, also known as Industrial Light and Magic, is a visual effects company based in San Francisco. They've been around since the 1970s, and they're known for pioneering a lot of production techniques used today. Plus, they've helped bring to life countless beloved films that have become cultural touchstones. In all of Pablo's 24 years at ILM, he's worked on a wide variety of movies. Some have been set in space, in galaxies far, far away. Some have giant apocalyptic explosions. Some have killer robots and aliens. But I was surprised to learn that he actually likes working on realistic films 
more than those flashy sci-fi worlds. Like in the case of The Irishman, it was not science fiction, it was reality, which I love reality more than science fiction, to be honest, because in reality, I have all the reference I can possibly get because it's right in front of me. Pablo is referring to the famous 2019 mob film. For this movie, Pablo worked on the de-aging effects. The film follows its characters throughout many decades of their lives. And it was important to the director that those characters were played by the same actors rather than getting a younger actor to play the character at a younger age. So... Pablo had the task of digitally de-aging them. In the early days, filmmakers would have to use makeup and hair dye and, you know, some sneaky camera tricks like soft focus to make someone look older or younger. As technology advanced, visual effects artists started to adopt different tools. Digital effects made aging or de-aging an actor look more realistic than ever before. But in order to film scenes that would get these effects, actors had to look kind of ridiculous with markers that look like ping pong balls stuck all over their faces. The reason why the markers are there is because you're basically having the computer take a look at a visual cue of what the camera is getting, right? And the computer takes a look at those markers and it creates what's called a mesh or a surface based on those markers, and has some depths. And that was basically the only way that you could measure and create geometry from a performance. But I think the challenge on Irishman was to say, well, if you don't have the markers, then how can you create geometry from that? That was Pablo's challenge, to find a way to capture this visual data and build a meaningful image based on it. And beyond creating something that looked real to the audience, the director also wanted the actors to have an authentic connection while they were playing out the scene. He wanted them to be looking right at each other, reacting to one another, not trying to ignore the fact that they had ping-pong balls all over their faces. And so, Pablo and his team had to invent a new method. The first step was to capture the actors doing a variety of boring things, like opening and closing their mouths, smiling, frowning, looking outraged. Those images were then fed into special software the team built to create a digital version of the actors, in a sense. But the team didn't just create a computer-generated version of these actors and then make scenes of the movie that way. Remember, the director wanted that real, authentic scene with real actors, who looked totally normal, no markers, nothing. To do that, they needed to build a new camera rig altogether, one that would give them three points of view. So the center camera is the director camera, and the other two cameras are called witness cameras that are left and right to the director's camera. And once you have three points of view, then you can create 3D geometry because the computer takes a look at those those three lenses, and they're like three eyes. That's why we have two eyes, right? When we, when we look forward... The left and the right eye are telling us depth. They're giving us depth information and positioning information. Pablo and his team worked on this innovation for four years. Because after they built the camera rig and after all the scenes were shot, they still needed to go through a long post-production process to digitally de-age the actors. Four years for visual effects that, when you think about it, should be unnoticeable. They should look seamless and real, And yet, even with all that work, there's still more to be done. One of the main things that the computer has a lot of problems with is ambiguity. So it was really important for us to kind of 
dissect all, all the things that make a performance ambiguous. And that is present in every one of these performances. Because in The Irishman, it's about murders and it's about you know mobsters and a bunch of th- different things about lying. And when you lie, there's usually you know, something in your face that is not lying. And that's ambiguity, right? Your eyes are saying one thing, but your mouth is saying another thing, and maybe your cheek is doing something else, and you're sweating, and your body posture is different. So you put it all together, and you get some kind of a performance that says something, and that's ambiguity. The computer cannot deal with that. You know, Kristen, what Pablo was talking about there reminds me of an idea that I've always found so interesting, the uncanny valley. Ah, yes, the valley of uncanniness. Exactly. It's an idea that originated all the way back in the 1970s when it was first discussed, not by a film critic, actually, but by Masahiro Mori, a robotics expert at Tokyo Institute of Technology. Now, i got to be honest, Corey, I've used the words uncanny valley in my own life many times, but I have no idea where the valley comes from in uncanny valley. Well, then I'll be your history of tech guy because it's a fun bit of tech history. Mori was talking about the quest for robots that look like real humans. He described it as a hike up a mountain. In his metaphor, the peak is achieving believable humanoids. But on the way there, he realized, roboticists are bound to hit a valley. And that's what he called the uncanny valley. That's where you've gotten close enough that the robot looks mostly human, but you're not quite at the top yet. So it's not yet believable. Ah, yes. Anyone who's been to the movies knows that feeling. Yeah, and even though this idea has been around for decades... Scientists still have not been able to truly understand the psychology of why it happens, why we get so creeped out by the uncanny valley, whether or not we could someday get past it. Well, on the journey to get past that valley, technology is helping filmmakers really stretch the boundaries of what's real and what's fake. This idea of the uncanny valley is something that came up a lot when I was talking with film critic Josh Rothkoff. Any critic has to definitely accommodate this idea of the technology that goes into making a film because film itself is a technological process. It's creating a kind of reality all through this machine, really, the camera and the sound recording and all the effects that go into a film. There's an illusion of life. There's an illusion of reality, but that's all created by technology. I feel like I am more prone to accepting and understanding the presence of special effects in genre films, where it makes sense that they're creating an alternate reality that doesn't exist or, you know, a futuristic world or a scary horror supernatural villain or something where a special effect would make sense. And when viewers can't suspend their disbelief, Josh says it turns into a pretty negative experience. And if for whatever reason we are thrown out of that engagement as viewers and we are no longer thinking about the story and we're no longer scared or we're no longer thrilled, then that's a fail. It's always a question of pushing the technology to the point where we believe it, but not quite past that edge. I asked Pablo about the Uncanny Valley too, and I found it interesting that he said his goal wasn't to exactly replicate what an actor looked like 40 years ago. Instead, what was the most important thing to create a behavioral likeness, which is what makes you look the way you do. And what makes you look the way you do is the process by which you go from A to B. You know, like if you're if you're happy and then you become sad, you do it in a very specific way that is 
iconic to what you are. So that, for me, is the most important thing that is necessary for a performance to be believable, to have the performance, to have the behavior likeness, to have the behavior that makes you who you are. Pablo and his team had this unique challenge. Audiences know and remember what these famous actors look like when they were younger. So that could contribute to what makes something look uncanny. It doesn't look quite like what you'd expect. But the film was still an innovative feat. In its first week of release, tens of millions of people watched it, and it bagged plenty of award nominations, too. Now, I also want to get to another idea that Josh brought up. Maybe trying to get past the uncanny valley comes at a cost. There's an argument to be made that by insisting that our special effects be so stubbornly realistic, we are depriving a new generation of their imaginative capacity. Now we have such awesome technology and the tools to correct everything. What are we correcting it to? We're correcting it to a different aesthetic that in and of itself is a choice. And not only are we depriving a viewer of making that sort of imaginative leap that's necessary in the older special effects, but that realistic aesthetic that digital artisans are so persistent in trying to achieve, that effect in and of itself is gonna seem dated. Kristen, I think that's a really interesting point that Josh makes, that reality also has its own aesthetic, that sometimes what we see as realistic in a film is still just a projection of what feels real. And another aspect of that came up when I was talking with Josh about black and white film versus color. Right. It's a surprisingly old creative choice that filmmakers have had to face. Most people don't realize that simple color movie technology was available very early on, before 1910. But even when realistic color film became an option in the 1930s, there were technological hurdles to adopting it. Color films required more lighting, for example, and actors overheated on set. But what I find really interesting, there are also ideological hurdles. Some people thought that watching a color film would be too distracting or too tiring, or it seemed like a gimmick. And then other people thought seeing a color film portrayed reality too brightly, that it looked weirdly too real. Yes, and I mean, obviously today, filmmakers still have the option of filming in black and white or color, even though most of them choose color. When they choose black and white, it's often because it reflects their ideas of reality or history or just their aesthetics. But I also want to keep thinking about the future here. Something that kept coming up in my research was the possibility of creating a totally digital version of an actor. Hmm. You know, I used to think the idea of a digital actor was silly. You used to? <laughs> I, yes, I, I did, but I changed my mind, and you know why? Why? Looking at face-swapping apps and deep fakes. On social media, it's so easy these days for kids to take their face and slap them on somebody else's face, and deep fakes. They've really developed over the years to become a simple DIY way to make it look like an actor or a politician is saying something they never said. It's like face-swapping on steroids. If it's already so easy to make believable fakes on social media, then a beefed-up version of the same tech could probably work to make a believable virtual actor in a big-budget movie, right? More on that after the break. Invesco QQQ is an ETF built around a belief that everyone should be able to invest in the possibilities of innovation. By providing access to the NASDAQ 100, Invesco QQQ allows you to be part of the progress created for all of our futures. To learn more, talk to your advisor or visit Invesco.com QQQ.
was really curious about this idea of a virtual act or two. So obviously, I had to ask the experts. Pablo told me that what works for deep fakes doesn't necessarily work on the big screen. Yet. The problem right now is that the older images that we have are very low resolution. And so all the things that you're seeing online with what's called deep fake and things like that, I mean, they're really good for what they are, but they cannot be put in display, in a 4K display with a screen that is 40 feet by 50 feet or something like that in a theater because the images don't don't scale up. But that doesn't stop people from trying. In fact, this is already happening to some extent where the estates of dead actors license out the usage to a technologically savvy crew that recreates them and recreates the actor's visage for a new performance that they never really did. There are examples where Hollywood is talking about reviving some of its most beloved long-dead icons and recasting them in new roles. Maybe you've seen the same headlines as Josh. And to be honest, that does sound a little frightening. And so I had to pose that question to Pablo, too. Technologically speaking, how close are we to that reality? I don't think, you know, (laughs) I know where you're going because I've been asked before, you know, do I think that we're going to be able to create a completely synthetic human that is available to do any kind of performance? And the answer is no. We're not going to be able to do that. See, this is the thing. We are the result of a bunch of experiences and connections that we make throughout our lives, right? So we are born, we you know, are raised and whatever, and we, we collect all kinds of things, experiences that come in, and we make connections that are genetic. And so those connections are very complex, but they're also the thing that pushes the results, the choices that we make when we talk or when we act in a specific way or when we make a choice about this or that. It's very difficult for me to think that programming a computer, even if you spend, you know, 90 years doing that, is going to make the same kind of connections and is going to learn from those connections the way we humans do. We're very complex. There are plenty of ethical and philosophical questions to ask about the future of visual effects. But now, there are also some very practical questions to consider as well. COVID-19 has disrupted the film industry. Key aspects of making a film like travel and having hundreds of people on set, those pose serious health risks. For some filmmakers, recreating reality on screen is less of a fancy add-on now and more of a necessity. Usually a film set is literally where a disease could run rampant. So you have hundreds of people all interacting physically, very closely, stressed, working hard. Johnny Fisk is the vice president of production at the visual effects company Fuse FX, and he runs their Los Angeles facility. Crowds, a lot of people in a tight room, you know, really a lot of stuff that, you know, we were all doing a couple of months ago that we probably can't be doing for quite a long time. We're going to have to be helping replicate with visual effects. Because film and TV sets have been drastically downsized, more world building now needs to happen in post-production. Essentially, visual effects artists are tasked with doing more with less. Fewer scenes taped in real-world locations, 
more green screens and shoots with no extras. None of that real-life texture. So the question is, how are visual effects artists going to keep creating believable worlds for movies and TV shows? In the future, I think the type of work is going to change, and the scope will grow a bit based on the type of things we'll need to be doing in visual effects. So there's quite a bit of talk amongst a lot of studios now about how we handle some of these scenarios, how we're able to bring visual effects to a different need. You know, whether that's not being able to go to a location, whether that's not being able to have the same people in the same places, you know, there could be things that we still haven't necessarily planned for. Virtual production is definitely a burgeoning aspect of visual effects. We've been doing green screen, blue screen for many, 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 many years, right? But virtual production is basically taking an environment and being able to replicate that environment in your shooting environment. Virtual production is an innovative approach that may be the key for unlocking the challenges of film production. In many cases, virtual production is powered by video game technology. It uses giant LED stages to create environments for actors to work and interact in. The large advantage of that is, you know, all of your lighting is real. All of the reflection and beautiful bounce and all of that that you would get in a real world environment, you're going to get if you're in a projected environment. It's complex technology, but at its core, it's reminiscent of an age-old visual effects trick, rear projection. You've probably noticed it in old movies. Maybe the main character is driving their car, and you can see a very fake-looking background zipping by out the window. Now we have much more control about what's being projected in there. It's not just stock footage thrown up on a scene and then, you know, an actor running away from something that's not there. You know, it's very different. An actor's virtual environment isn't just limited to a static backdrop anymore. Computer graphics could be recreating a number of different elements of a scene. You could potentially be rendering a lot in real time in a scene, in an environment. You could have elements in that background. So you could have full CG characters. You could have full CG vehicles, elements. You could have potentially some effects, things like that going on. And the power of virtual production means that the director can see it all in the camera while the actors are acting. All of the graphics that build the scene, the backdrop, the CGI creatures, the explosions, they're all there on the camera monitor being created in real time. Directors no longer have to wait to see everything in post-production. And so FuseFX's clients are getting more and more interested in exploring what a future of virtual production and other visual effects solutions could look like to keep production on schedule and perhaps even improve the film in the end. And so film shoots will likely look different in the near and far future. So, you know, we're going to shoot a couple actors on a green screen and we're going to do some work in compositing. I think there's going to be more of that. I think there's going to be fewer people shooting and where they're shooting might change. You know, where they're shooting might be their living room. I think we're seeing it now. We're seeing a lot of the stuff that is currently making air on network television and online, people are working from their home. They've got a green screen up and, you know, we're replacing that environment that they're in. So, you know, I think it's going to be a culmination of techniques here to reduce the number of people and reduce the risk of anyone getting sick. With the complications of the pandemic, the challenges that visual effects artists face remain the same and maybe have an even greater consequence. How do you create or recreate a reality on screen? Maybe it's a reality we've never seen before, an alien world or fantasy environment. Maybe it's one that mirrors our own experiences. 
Or maybe it's a reality that just doesn't exist anymore. Johnny, however, is optimistic. I think the future's still bright. We live in a world where people will find a way. I think humanity in general tends to grow and thrive in scenarios where we're stretched, where we're challenged. And I think having that challenge and being challenged forces us to be greater and explore new options and invent new ways of doing things. I mean, that's progress. You know, that's innovation. That's, that's, that's how you move forward. Ah, you know, Kristen, it's great to hear that technology could make it possible to keep making movies during these difficult times, because I don't know about you, but I could use a dose of good escapism right about now. Yes, but as much as I love some cinematic escapism, Pablo Hellman from Industrial Light and Magic also gave me a different way of looking at things. Let me share this quote with you. I talk to younger people and they say, you know, what advice can you give me? How can I get into visual effects? I say, well, just look at life. So just looking at your life around you and realizing that there's a lot of beautiful stuff there, there's a lot of stuff that is not beautiful and you're going to have to recreate it. And what is it that makes something real? That is the kind of the job that we have. So maybe this is also a good time to appreciate the complexity of reality all around us. And there's plenty of complexity, especially right now. Some Hollywood productions are actually moving forward trying to capture the reality of this moment. They're making masks, social distancing in the pandemic, part of their scripts and their aesthetic decisions. That, plus all the tech innovations they already have in their arsenal, it makes me very curious to see what kind of art and entertainment is coming next. Innovation Uncovered is a podcast from Invesco QQQ in partnership with T-Brand at The New York Times. Throughout the series, we're taking a look at all of the innovative work that goes into the things you love. Next time, we're looking at an evolution happening behind the scenes to change the game of basketball. And then we were sitting there thinking to ourselves, wow, this is really awesome. It's only accessible once a year to like the 0.1% of basketball players out there. What if we could bring this type of experience into people's homes, their driveways? Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Innovation Uncovered wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends about the show. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time at the movies. Innovation Uncovered is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. From tech innovators to lesser-known biotech and media companies, Invesco QQQ is more than just a tech fund. It's an ETF that allows you to access the NASDAQ 100, some of today's most innovative companies that are changing the world. To learn more about what this ETF can mean for your portfolio, visit Invesco.com QQQ. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies traded on the NASDAQ. You cannot invest directly in an index. Risks are involved with investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs are subject to risks similar to those of stocks. Investments focused in the technology sector are subject to greater risk and are more greatly impacted by market volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors Incorporated.